Hello everyone, welcome to Around the Court Squash Podcast. Peter Nickel will not be joining us today. Having waited 47 years to record his first ever podcast, he decided to strike while the iron was hot, informing us he would be recording another the following day. We all laughed. Not notorious for his jokes, I even recorded in my diary. Peter Nickel said a joke today. It was very funny. On today's show, we welcome Daniel Tiwana. Daniel is a 10-year-old squash player from Vancouver in Canada who has become a bit of a YouTube sensation following some training videos he's been posting online. These videos are super inspiring and are definitely worth a look. We also welcome back to the world live squash, courtesy of Squash XL and club owner John Duggan in Auckland, New Zealand. Following Peter's interview with Jerry Gibson last week, Stuart and Chris talk about the influence both Peter Nicol and Jonathan Power had in both Scotland and Canada as they were growing up in the 90s and early noughties. We hope you enjoy today's show. My name is Arthur Gaskin. With me is Stuart Crawford, Christopher Sackley and Jamal Collander. How are you doing, fellas? How are you doing, Arthur? Good to be here with you guys. Good, thanks. Jamal, do you want to say a few words about yourself? Yeah. So as Arthur said, my name is Jamal Callender. I've been working with Peter Nickel in New York City for the last six and a half years at Nickel Squash. Grew up playing or got into the game kind of late uh, when I was 14. Then my junior squash here in Brooklyn. Went to the University of Rochester for a year and a half and started coaching right after that. You finished your academic requirements super quick there, Jamal. In a year yeah, and a half. You know, I just I just breezed through all some quick math here. Uh, <laughs> 40-ish credits in a year and a half. You know, I was taking 400 level courses of freshmen and I was very modest the entire way, obviously. Love it. So what have you been up to, fellas? Well, running a little bit more, trying to keep up with my training. So did another 16-miler on Sunday, which was decent. It's no getting a bit idea. harder with the, with the increased temperatures, but powering through, so it's going well. You mentioned last week that you're more of a runner these days, but I don't think you actually gave a real indication of more of a runner isn't just going out for a jog. You're a serious runner. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I started because I... I wanted to run a marathon as like a bucket list item. And I kind of felt like the more I did research, I realized that running a marathon under three hours was quite a big deal and was like a way of being recognized as a legitimate runner. So I set that as a goal. Thought that if I put in some work and trained properly, it was realistic. So I ended up doing my first marathon back in 2016. I actually ran 2.57, but after 18 miles, I was on target to run about 2.48 and then I completely blew up. And just fell apart. Um, yeah, yeah, that's not very that's good. Slacker. <laughs> God, dude, get up now. But then, then I did another one about a year later and got down to 250. And then actually, that was just after I'd come to the US. And a few people had mentioned that that time would probably get me into the Boston Marathon, which I didn't actually realize was quite a big deal. Like Boston's one of the major marathons in the world and actually the only one that you have to qualify through your time. So I ended up doing the Boston Marathon 2018, which was one of the most horrible experiences of my running and or athletic life in general. It was freezing, pouring rain all day and not something that I enjoyed or (laughs) wanted to repeat. You also had the funniest tweet ever after you did that race and I remember the day because I'm actually not that far from Boston and it was absolutely choking it down and Stuart's tweet went along the lines of something like we had every kind of rain today side rain front rain back rain every rain except for 
no rain. <laughs> <laughs> I think I also said something about it. So I remember the temperature when we started was like two degrees. And I think the, the highest it got up to was like five or six degrees. This is Celsius. And I remember tweeting about, if anyone's not sure what that means, it's basically the recommended temperature for a fridge. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. How about you, Jamal? I can't say that I've been running. Um, I've been doing virtual squash training here in New York with, with Chris and Peter. I've been playing poker on my phone a lot more than I used to. Are you up or are you done? Up, actually. Oh, man. And uh, yeah, a lot of YouTube, a lot of Netflix, to be honest. Chris, how about you, man? Trying to keep up with some good workouts. I actually just got off the Laura Massaro and Jackie Wednesday noon hour Eastern time workout, which was really fun. This past weekend, um, I don't think I set a record, but I, I walked a brisk 18 holes in three hours and 45 minutes, similar to marathon pace for a golfer, I think. Cool. Stuart, do you want to lead out on what's been sort of going on in the last week in the sporting and the squash world? Yeah, so I think the big thing was the we actually had some competitive squash this week. So down in New Zealand, they had not a PSA level event, but a small tournament with eight young players playing. We're going to speak to one of the guys involved later on in the show, but I thought that was quite exciting just to have some actual squash to watch. Personally, watched a little bit of it, which again, we'll speak about later. But yeah, it was just great to see that. The other big thing was... A video that went relatively viral featuring a young 10-year-old boy from Canada. If anyone hasn't seen that video, I would highly recommend checking it out. <laughs> He's an absolute beast. <laughs> there was also a really good squash podcast with Peter Nickel being interviewed by Jerry Gibson, where he gave great insight into his career, his rivalry with Jonathan, and all the great players that he played through the different eras. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, we all know Peter fairly well, so, but even we probably found out a few things about the early stages of his career. I think as much as Jerry's now our biggest rival because we're coming for that crown for number one squash podcast, <laughs> I think he's done a phenomenal job. I've been listening pretty much from the start. I might have missed one or two of the episodes early on, but I think from episode like 10, I've listened to every single one of them. Some of the interviews he's done have been great. He's He's got some fantastic guests on, whether it's PSA players or coaches or just different interesting people from the squash world. And he, he does a phenomenal job just generating conversations with them that are really interesting to the, the squash fans out there. Yeah, I thought Peter, um, as always, was just so well-spoken and you know we joked last week that he he blacked out a couple times and had some uh had some miraculous insight into some topics it's yeah it's not that wasn't luck he's excellent speaker is really cool to listen to you know how how he developed his game to match match his rivals and uh i texted the the group chat that we're on with with us and peter after and i i'm i think he's up to something the timing wasn't wasn't up to chance i think he's challenging us he goes on our biggest competitors podcast he says everything he needs to say he has this great interview he wanted us to you know have to have to chase even higher to take the crown yeah i'm gonna call it bs on this whole you know peter saying that he's not quite into podcasts and you know he's a bit too old to get it technologically i think that's all bruce Stuart, Chris, it was fascinating to get an insight into the rivalry between Jonathan and Peter in their heyday. What I'd be fascinated to hear is how both Jonathan and Peter influenced your squash and squash at your clubs and how big of an impact or influence did they have in squash in Canada and Scotland? 
Yeah, so I started playing squash in 1992, and I think Peter was, don't want to give his age away, but I think he was 19 at the time. He's 47 at the minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was 11, he was 19. I never actually got to see him playing junior tournaments, so I started playing tournaments the year after when I was 12, but by that point he was living in England, and unfortunately I didn't get to really see him play but I was always aware of him. He started moving up the world rankings fairly early on. And I remember being a relatively obsessed kid with, as soon as I got into the sport, I fell in love with it and would like, it wasn't as easy back in the day to follow tournaments, but I used to, I eventually got a subscription to Squash Player magazine and I would get it every month and then read through the results and see Peter's progress up the rankings and what tournaments he'd been playing. And then maybe around 94, 95, he was really starting to establish himself in the top 10 in the world by that point. And for me personally, that was just really exciting and really motivating to see someone from the same country, same sort of background, being so successful. I still remember I used to record like highlights shows on, used to be Sky Sports in the UK. And I would then watch those videos of Peter playing for like the next month on repeat. But I never actually met Peter for the first time until maybe around 2003, I think by which point he had actually transferred allegiance to England and there was a bit of controversy around that, as people know. Certainly I understood why he'd done it. I was familiar with the reasons behind his move and I certainly never held a grudge. I think that in some ways it was very understandable. Uh, it would have been great if he had stayed and continued to represent Scotland because obviously I would have got to benefit that when I finally got into the national team. But funny story, actually, my debut for the Scotland national team actually was Peter's debut for the, the England national team. Uh, so we played. My first ever European Championships was in 2003. It was in Nottingham. And this was Peter. Peter had declared for England, I think, in 2001, but he had to wait a couple of years until he was eligible. You had to wait, I think, three years from your previous appearance. So he's making his debut for, for England. I'm making my debut for Scotland. And the third player making their debut in that match was actually James Wilstrock, who I played in that match. How'd that goes too? I actually went better than you might imagine, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he won three love, but... Yeah, I didn't disgrace myself and felt like I played reasonably well, but given my limited capability at that point. I had my debut for Ireland against England the following year, and I almost got triple bageled. <laughs> <laughs> so it uh, sounds like your debut went to hell of a lot better than mine did. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just speak on um, growing up in Canada with Jonathan Power as, you know, the first North American, world number one, what he did for... The country and all of us young young players coming up. I mean, I think I've I've heard it too many times that you know that everyone says I I love the hold and it's Jonathan esque. And uh, I think my whole era grew up trying to swing like Jonathan. Uh, we loved the antics when we watched his videos. Got to see him play almost every year in Toronto at the Pace Canadian Classic which was a ton of fun. Yeah, I think the, you know, cool thing for me was when I was around 20 or 21 years old, I started working for the Power Squash Academy, got to know Jonathan and Ian really well, uh, still keep up with Jonathan. Kind of in a Kevin Durant-esque move, I moved over to the Nickel Squash Academy when the Power Squash Academy uh, stopped doing their summer camps. So it's, it's been really fun to get to know both these guys. And as Peter alluded to on the Squash Pod, I, they do have a ton of similarities, even though they're, they are very different. 
obviously the competitive nature of both of them is is, is world class and, and pretty funny to see it come out in you know playing cards with Jonathan after camp or uh, we played some shuffleboard in Brooklyn this uh, winter with Peter and you know it's just funny to see those guys compete at anything they they don't like to lose. <laughs> Stuart you were a big fan of the last dance that finished up in the weekend Yes, it's funny, Chris, talking about uh, Peter and Jonathan and their competitiveness. I think if you want to take that to the absolute extreme, then just watch The Last Dance and you'll see that Michael Jordan had that in abundance. Um, But yeah, I thought it was one of the best sports documentaries I've probably ever seen in my life. Possibly one of the best documentaries full stop. Some unbelievable footage going back like 20 or 30 years. And yeah, what I sort of found noticeable was just the sort of lessons that players and coaches could take from it so we've actually recommended that our entire teams need to watch it because there's just so many great moments in in the series that you can learn from and obviously Michael Jordan's competitiveness and his drive and his work ethic and just his his absolute determination to be the best in the world shines right through but some of the sort of more nuanced things that I took from it were the contribution of his teammates and the different personalities and the different characters within the show and how they were all able to get the best out of each other. So people like uh, Scottie Pippen, obviously a lot more reserved and quieter than Jordan. Dennis Rodman, who's who's actually quite quiet, but then also has this completely wild off-the-rails side but he's allowed to go and be himself and no one's trying to make him into another Michael Jordan or get him to conform in a certain way. And I think Phil Jackson is a really smart, almost ahead of his time coach in terms of the way he manages people and allows individual characters to, to just express themselves on the, on the court and also in the locker room and in their personal life. He's not trying to mold them into a certain way. So as a coach, that's certainly something that I took from it just Obviously, working with college teams where you have 15 or 16 players in your squad, there's not one right way to be an athlete or to be a, a squash player, just like there isn't for basketball teams. Yeah, true. Uh, what I'm fascinated, I mean, I haven't seen it. I've seen Space Jam, and that was brilliant. Well, um, this is almost the same. But I'm interested to hear, uh, from your perspective, Phil Jackson, the manager, like, you're a successful team. You've got this huge central character, Michael Jordan, and then you've got all these characters that, by their own, in their own right, are world class players. Like, how does he, how does he manage the characters? How does he manage and massage everyone's ego so that they all feel important? I mean, if there's not four guys around him or however many players are on the team, then he can't be as successful as he was, right? Yeah, so they they really shine a light on the general manager bringing in people that that would complete the roster. It's cool to watch. Dennis Rodman was on the Bad Boy Pistons, which were the Bulls' big kind of rival, big hump to get over originally. So the guys on the on the Bulls weren't necessarily the biggest fans of anyone on the Pistons, but when they traded for him. They knew that that was a piece that was going to complete the roster. And so, like, they put all judgment aside and just kind of welcomed welcomed Dennis into the crew. And then you have a guy like Phil Jackson where he could allow guys to do some things that would keep them happy and keep them really working towards the team goal that I don't think coaches could get away with nowadays. I don't think you could say, uh, you know, Dennis, go – be a professional wrestler for the night and then join us on the road tomorrow or you know go party in Vegas for a couple of days 
literally during the NBA Finals, Dennis Rodman went on uh, WCW. It's like, go wrestle with Hulk Hogan for a couple of days during the NBA Finals. Like, that definitely couldn't happen nowadays. <laughs> he also, at one point, allows Rodman, and I th- again, this is testament to Phil's understanding of different individuals, but Rodman basically asked for permission to go to Vegas for 48 hours. And, and Jordan is like, no way, don't let this happen. And there's no way he's coming back in 48 hours. But Phil Jackson recognizes that here's a guy that will give everything on the court for the team if we allow him to go and do his thing. And as it turns out, he doesn't return within 48 hours. And most of the team are a little bit disappointed. But I think Phil Jackson's understanding of he just needs that to be at his best. Like you cannot possibly be on the ball 24-7, 365 days a year. He needs to go and let off steam and then come back and be even better for us. Yeah, amazing. Um, One quote that kind of stands out for me from Jordan from that documentary was how he talked about he would never ask them to do something that he wouldn't do himself. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Stuart. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say a high percentage of your best performances came in a Scottish shirt. And there were times when Scotland as a team made a European semi or a podium when paper would suggest you were punching. What would you say to that from a team perspective? And what was it personally that extracted these performances from you? I think one of the things was we had a really good bond amongst the team. You know, we had a centralized training program where we all trained together day to day. We got to spend a lot of time with each other throughout the year, whereas I know in Ireland that wasn't the case. So you guys basically just came together for the Europeans or the Worlds. Whereas we really felt like we were in it together. And certainly me personally, I love playing with people like Alan Klein had some of his best wins of his career playing for Scotland as well. I remember one year watching him beat Borja Golan when he was like five in the world and just think this shouldn't be happening and it probably wouldn't happen in a normal PSA event. But we all just seemed to bring out the bit, like we just wanted to play our best for each other. Again, I think that comes back to just the time that you spent together. Playing for Scotland was basically me playing with some of my best friends at the time. And I think that was a big part of it. And it'd be interesting, I mean, you've obviously not seen the documentary because you're too tight to get an ESPN subscription. (laughs) (laughs) No, I got a second. (laughs) But I mean, you must have a lot of experiences of playing in both the Irish national team, but also playing like league squash around the world and just experiencing being on different teams and how you get the best out of each other. It's not easy. Yeah, to be honest, league was a mixed bag. But I always loved playing for Ireland. And in the early years, I was very fortunate to have in Derek Ryan and Stevie Richardson, the ultimate teammates. And they really led by example way how they performed and how they really just dug very deep into their reserves time after time. And that really rubbed off on me. So I, like you, Stuart, probably had my best results playing for Ireland. And that's largely down to like being inspired by all my teammates, but in particular, um, Stevie and Derek. And it was so good that when you did have a good result, you were sharing it with your friends. And when you had a bad result, you weren't on your own, depressed in a room. You were with your mates and you won together and you lost together. And I, and I probably appreciate that a hell of a lot more the older I got. Yeah, um, we had that in Scotland as well. I mean, my first couple of Europeans, we had John White and Martin Heath in the team. Uh, so I was lucky enough to benefit from spending a bit of time with them. But but also like you, Arthur, um, it was actually later in my career that we actually had some of our best results with probably on paper a, a less ability to, uh, sorry, less talented team on paper. But we were just all there fighting for every single point for each other. And Chris, I think you see it in college squash as well. Like the teams that are really successful to some extent are the teams that 
really want to play for each other. And you can see there's a camaraderie amongst the group that extends beyond just training partners and like playing squash with each other every day. Yeah, 100%. I think, it, I think it means a ton because I think in college squash, unless you're Harvard, it, it's hard to win every year, but you're always kind of chasing, you're, you're always chasing to be better than people predict you to be almost. So if you're coming into the season ranked fifth, you want to finish top three. And if you do, that's like a huge success. And I think the teams that play for each other it, on match day make a huge difference, but also the little things like taking care of yourself, just everything that goes into winning, you're going to do a little bit harder because you want to win for your teammates. And I think that's huge. And I experienced it at Cornell, even one of the probably weaker teams we had, you know, we, we way outmatched our, our level. And I think that was just because we had so much fun together and, and, you know, we, we wanted to win. And then there's other years that you have a great team and it just doesn't quite fall the way you wanted it to. And when you look back at it, it can just be some of those little things uh, that add up over the course of the season. Of course, if you're, if you're surrounded by your mates and you're keeping each other in good spirits, it's going to help you just squeeze that extra couple of percent out of you. Okay, guys, uh, so we're moving into an unbelievable interview uh, Chris exactly did earlier on with Daniel Tiwano. 10-year-old YouTube squash sensation. We hope you enjoyed this interview. Daniel Tiguano. Around the Court podcast, we have a very special guest, fellow countryman of mine, a young Canadian lad who has taken the squash internet by storm, I'll say. And um, Daniel, very impressive, very inspirational quarantine video. So welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me here. It's an honor to be on this podcast with all of these professional players and Peter Nickel, former world number one legend. I mean, no offense, guys, but <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. He, he is a bit of a legend. I agree. We don't tell him too often, though, because he gets it enough. <laughs> so, Daniel, t- just to start, tell us a little about yourself. How old are you? Where are you from? And how long have you been playing squash for? Well, I've been playing squash for since I was seven, but I only started training properly about six months ago. I'm 10 years old and I was born in Vancouver, BC. Awesome. So just to give our listeners a little bit of an introduction to your, to your video and what's happening with that. Daniel posted a video on YouTube titled Stay Hungry Squash Quarantine Training and then his name Daniel Tawana and I've been checking it every few hours to make sure my numbers are up to date and you're over 2,000 views right now and you've got comments from Deck James, PSA Squash TV, Canadian legend Mike McHugh, <laughs> one of one of one of my friends, one of my brother's good friends, and then shared on Twitter by Squash Canada, Daryl Selby, like I said, Peter Nickel, Arthur Gaskin, Stuart Crawford, and I. And um, I sent it to my brother Nick, who's current Canadian national men's champion, and everyone just loved it. And uh, you know, everyone said you you got to get this guy on, you got to get him on. So we're we're super pumped to have you. And just curious, you know what your training regimen has been and during quarantine and you know what motivates you right now uh well i guess 
I started my, when my brother suggested that we go to the local park and work out there every day. And then my dad built a squash wall in the garage so I could hit in the garage anytime I got a break from online schooling. Then we realized that there was enough space in our backyard to create like a little area so we could ghost. So I was doing ghosting, hitting in the garage, going to the local park to work out, doing lots of push-ups, ab work, doing crunches, the plank, lots of skipping. And from then, I just started every day. I'd be, I'd be um, working out for two hours, sometimes almost three hours. And I was into this full training regimen. And it was so much fun. It is so much fun right now. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I saw the squash saw the squash wall in the garage. I mean, looks super cool. I've seen some other some other videos get circulated on the on the quarantine training that, you know, people built little small course, but you've actually got a pretty pretty good area in the garage where you can hit some hit some overdrives and um yeah it was really cool to see and, and you know I think everyone was impressed by your jump rope skills I mean I've been doing a little bit and I can't I can't jump rope like you so kudos where'd you learn how to do that uh, well I started skipping about eight weeks ago the start of quarantine and I just started working on the simple stuff I practiced for an hour in a day and then I started watching Anthony Joshua training videos on YouTube. He's a boxer who I love to watch. And I noticed he was doing all this cool stuff, all these tricks, these complex moves. And I thought, why don't I learn how to do that? So <laughs> I started YouTubing videos on how to do these tricks. And now, since I practice them a lot, I just incorporate them into my routines when I skip every day. Amazing. And that was one of my next questions. Who are some of your favorite sporting idols, squash and outside of the squash world? And I know you mentioned um, Anthony Joshua and Muhammad Ali. Do you, any, any other sports that you're interested in? Any other sports you really like to play and any other sporting figures you really like to follow? Uh, well... I play a bit of baseball. Actually, I play a lot of baseball. <laughs> summer, I'd be playing every day. Every day, I'd play for an hour, two hours, sometimes three hours, and I just love the sport. I used to play a bit of basketball and a little bit of soccer, but those sports, I just didn't really like that much. Yeah. And I'm really happy I play in squash now and baseball. Yeah, it's nice, nice to have a sport you like in both seasons. I used to really like playing hockey and basketball, but squash was kind of my first and uh, biggest love. So it was hard having three winter sports to to want to play all the time. Had to had to pick, and I think we think we have a, a good one in squash. <laughs> squash is definitely my favorite sport. Awesome. And any other sporting idols that you you've been following through quarantine and getting training inspiration from? Uh, I read a bit about Bruce Lee. And I'm reading Hank Haney's book about Tiger Woods right now. And I think it's a great book. What really interests me about Tiger Woods was that he was always so focused when he was at the driving range. And Hank Haney said that the one thing that blew him away about Tiger Woods was Tiger Woods could be at the driving range for hours 
but he would always be focused on every single shot. He would never take a shot off where he'd just kind of just hit it. He'd always be focused. He'd always be looking at where his target was. He would always be setting up perfectly for every shot. And it all comes down to intensity when you're training. And I just found that very interesting about Tiger Woods. That's awesome. Yeah, it sounds very different from my golf game. <laughs> and so, you know, just to, just to kind of cap off, I, I wanted to hear, hear, you know, about your goals in your squash over the next few years and, and where you want to take this. And I've been a coach at the Battle of the Border for 10 or 11 years and, you know, really looking forward to, to seeing you suit up for Canada in the coming years. So just wanted to hear about some things you're striving for in, in your next few years of squash and, you know, what's, what's driving you. Uh, you know, I've kind of been taking everything one step at a time. I haven't really thought about the next five or 10 years. I'm just focused on playing well in tournaments when I get back on court and just learning a bit more about the game of squash and myself, just improving. I'm not worried about what could happen in five or 10 years. I haven't thought of that yet. I'm good, just good on playing well in the next tournaments I plan. Awesome. Keep having fun and keep enjoying it. And with, uh, you know, your work ethic and the way you're approaching it, you're going to do big things. And, you know, it'll be fun to hopefully see you on court um, at the Battle of the Border and Canadian Junior Open in, in the future. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I think it would be amazing to represent my country at something like the Battle of the Border. I think that would be amazing. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Daniel. It was really good chatting with you, and I'm glad, you know, the listeners can put a voice and a little bit more of a story behind your video. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Perfect. Wow. What a guy. What an absolute guy. Wise beyond his years. <laughs> the legend of Canada interviews the beast of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm interested to hear uh Jamal's take. I mean, Jamal's known around Manhattan Community Squash Center as the sergeant of pain, lover of feet tests, burpees and push-ups and and then um I was interested to to see what Jamal says cuz he's always trying to throw some exercises at people to insert a little pain, but uh I don't know if you could get them, Jamal. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. I'm I am a little sadistic when it comes to exercises not painful but exercises that we do with the kids but as you guys said earlier I can't how when I was 10 my main concerns weren't getting socked in the in the gut by my by my brother while doing burpees it was how can I get to nap time quicker and how can I convince my parents to go to Mickey D's so at that I'm like kind of jealous I'm not gonna lie I kind of wish in a weird way I wish I had that sort of mentality when I was 10. It's also very interesting Stuart to like to bring it back to your point of you know, not having access to uh, live squash and maybe as, as much content in general, right? I mean, uh, 94, when you started playing squash at 11, maybe a little bit of internet, not, not, not quite. So, you know, so, so Daniel's got these idols and Anthony Joshua, all the top squash players. He's trying to mimic them, which is super cool. I definitely did that with, you know, Jonathan Power, like I said, with the swing and trying to, you know, have a great hold. And, but, these young kids coming up have so much awesome 
information and video in front of them. And like he said, he just started skipping for real at the start of quarantine. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it is. I mean, first of all, I want to know a 10-year-old that has six-pack abs like that. Like, <laughs> certainly none of us do. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, the access to content and information and just, like I say, I used to have the same like VHS video of Peter playing for an hour that I used to watch on repeat for a month, whereas now you can go on, there's ton, tons and tons of videos on YouTube through the PSA YouTube channel. They've got their Squash TV channel where you can actually subscribe and you can get full matches of basically any tournament in the last 10 years. The availability of that information for young players these days is just completely different to what it was back in our day. Not that I like to hark back to when we were kids because it doesn't feel that long ago, but... That's certainly one aspect that's speak for yourself, Stuart. Changed. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that two two year age gap makes a big difference, right? <laughs> it's, um, it's interesting. Peter did touch on that last week, being a pro and having all those resources available to him. Like he would have done his own thing as a player, but he also would have been checking out to see what Jonathan was doing or Thierry giving that a go. Yeah, I think you, you also need to be a little bit careful not to be overwhelmed by it all because it's. It's tempting to see that and think that everyone's training twice as hard as you are. And then you sort of get yourself into a hole of either training harder and starting to get hurt or maybe just losing motivation because you're like, well, there's no way I can train that hard. I think we all know that social media is a little bit artificial in terms of what people put out on their social media platforms tends to be fairly manufactured and it's maybe not reflective of their actual life. Um, so I wouldn't want a 10-year-old to watch that video and think, oh, well, I need to be, I need to let my brother punch me in the stomach if I want to be good at squash. <laughs> um, I think the, the key for any kid, and we all work with kids at that age, whether it's regularly in Arthur and Jamal's case or maybe just in the summer for me and Chris, um, I think the key is just to make sure you enjoy what you're doing. If you enjoy it, you're going to continue doing it for longer and the longer you continue doing it and training hard, then the better you're going to get. It's really that simple. Uh, moving on. Live squash kicked off again uh, last weekend in the first of four uh, mini events in New Zealand, in Auckland. Quite an interesting story. John Duggan, the owner of Club XL in New Zealand, had a couple of players quarantined at his club. Yeah, I mean, I first became aware of this maybe a month ago because a tweet that I saw that was an article, uh, sorry, not an article, uh, an interview with these two guys, I think Temo Chilise and Joel Arscott. Basically, these two young pro squash players in New Zealand that saw this lockdown coming down, uh, coming ahead, basically asked the owner of their club, do you mind if we go and live in the squash club so that we can keep training? So they were actually featured on one of the New Zealand news channels. Uh, it's like a two-minute uh, video showing them like sleeping in the club. They had mattresses in one of the rooms. They were cooking dinner using the kitchen facilities, and then obviously hitting on court every day. Uh, one of them actually commented that it was a little bit strange to go to the bathroom and walk past the squash court. Um, but then just about a week ago, obviously, New Zealand has handled this case, the coronavirus, pretty well and seems like it's got it under control. So uh, a lot of their restrictions have been lifted and they're now essentially going back to some sort of normal life. So it seems like John had this idea to, to just hold a tournament. And obviously the two boys have been training and he, he managed to get another six players from around the country. Uh, all fairly young, I believe. So I think the youngest was only 17. I think the oldest was 21. So a group of young guys. I say I watched a little bit of it over the weekend. And no surprise that the guys that had been living in the squash club and 
training together every day also with the guys most prepared that made the final. So where to where uh, all, the, all the juniors are listening out there? Petition the club owners to let you sleep on the squash court. Yeah, absolutely, Jamal. Uh, okay, guys, well, let's have a listen to what John Duggan, owner of Squash XL in Auckland, New Zealand, has to say. Hey, John, how you doing, man? I'm good, bro. Where are you? <laughs> I'm, in a, I'm in a dungeon. Hey, looks like... Um, my boys have been sleeping for the last uh, couple of months, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. Cool piece you got on the news. Yeah, 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 it was. It was actually, um, uh, I mean, timing was great because there wasn't much else on and they were kind of sick of the same stories, you know. So um, one of the journalists got onto it and they're pretty happy to do something different, yeah. How have you guys been coping in general? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, obviously, um, the uh, for my particular, you know, we've had a couple of guys stay at the centre, which obviously for them, it's, it's been different. And we've, we've had a shorter period of lockdown. It was pretty severe considering the level of cases, you know, but it did work. Um, isolation suits us, obviously, as well. Like, you know, there wasn't COVID here. A few people that came home brought it back with them. That's about it, really. So it was pretty easy for them to to shut it down. Um, And then now we've come out the other side and we're just dealing with the new normal, which is not like it was before, but better than being, you know, locked down kind of thing. It it does look like from the outside looking in that New Zealand had a pretty good handle on it straight away and took no chances. Yeah. I think that obviously um, the fact that we're able to play and train and we're able to train fully. So one of the things that was a surprise, a good surprise for us was that when we got to what we call here level two, we were able to train effectively normal squash. Whilst off the court there's social distancing and there's rules around sanitation and there's a few things that we do on the court, they're able to play full full contact squash, if we could say that, even though it's not supposed to be a contact sport. When did phase two start? So that started on the Thursday. So literally um, on midnight of Thursday morning, for want of a better term, um, we kicked into level two. And then literally, you know, 36 hours later, we were playing professional squash. I think the whole world <laughs> pretty grateful they have a bit of live squash to watch did all the all the guys were living together or was it just the two fellas? no we just had the two guys there um one thing we were concerned with was how we would handle that originally so there was a scenario that we put to the player so we can't we, we decided um that we wanted to put something together when we went into lockdown so two months ago i talked to various people about uh what we were going to do when we came out of this um, we've got a media guy, Dave Worsley, who's been very helpful doing media work for us. And we talked about, could we get it onto Sky TV here in New Zealand if we ran a series? Could we do that? Because there's no live sport and, and they're very hungry for live sport. And we, uh, so we sort of planned this, the series. When, before we knew the restrictions on professional sport, we thought there was a scenario where maybe the guys would have to be tested and maybe they would have to stay at Squash XL for the duration of the event. And we, we've got space for that. We could do that. It would be a, a camp out, basically. They'd have to bring you know, sleeping bags and that kind of thing. So we were actually prepared for that. And I expected that would be the scenario, that we'd have to get some kind of health check and that we'd have to isolate the players for the duration of the event. But in, in the end, because the rules came out around level two and around professional sport, and we didn't have to do that. So it's made it a lot easier for us. Yeah. The foresight to get this up and running like two months in advance, that's brilliant. How did you come up with that think of it one of the things that I do is I manage these players and we plan you know 
at least 18 months in advance in terms of events they might play, training blocks, all that kind of thing. So we're always thinking long, long ways ahead in terms of what we, we do. And what we've done here at Squash Excel is we often fill the gap. When we first put our professional squad together about two years ago, one of the biggest issues that immediately came up was that, the, especially with changes to the tour with qualifying, was that pros starting out can't get into 5Ks, you know? And so that's when we started doing satellite events. And so we've always had a view that plan people's schedules, we try and get them into the strongest events we can get them into. And then if there's little gaps, we'll we'll work with clubs or, or we'll promote satellites and other events on our own um, to give them playing opportunities to maximise their uh, chances of improving their ranking. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's just about the qualifying. You don't, it's hard to get to kind of get yourself up off the bottom to have the opportunity to play. And I think ultimately, given that the opportunity to play, then it's, it's, it's super difficult. Absolutely. I mean, they've had 5Ks in the, US, in the UK sorry, that cut off at like 150, 160 world ranking. Yeah. Um, so there's over 600 guys on the tour. What, what do you do if you're outside 150? You can't even get into a 5K, for goodness sake. Yeah. And then uh, and if you're not in a country that's running lots and lots of satellites, then how do you get your ranking up? It's, not, it's just not possible. And there's no money in the game anyway. How long are you going to last as a young pro, as an emerging pro? You, you, know, you need momentum. You need to play events. You've got to test yourself. You need to see your ranking going up. Your parents want to see that. Your sponsors, everyone wants to see that. And so it's absolutely critical. So yeah. what happened was at the end of 2018, we decided to put it on some satellites. Um, I'd previously done a 15K and a 10K here at Squash Excel. And at the end of 2018, we decided to do satellites. And then we knew that in order to get the numbers, we needed to hopefully pull some people from overseas. So we decided to do them in series. The initial series was just two events, but then we did um, them in groups of four and five. And we got a lot of interest from uh, South Korea, where um, a few players came across, and a lot of fan interest from South Korea. So we got massive views on our live streams and our YouTube from South Korea, which, you know, we really appreciate that. That's amazing. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I mean, we had something like 65% of our YouTube watch minutes were from South Korea, um, which was amazing because, you know, I hadn't been there. I'd love to go there. And if anyone from South Korea listens to this, please invite <laughs> us over and we'll run an event and we'll live stream it for you for free. But that's the, that's the reality. So that was fun. So we started doing that. And, and so that's always been our mindset is, is that if we need to, we'll try and do stuff to optimize the schedule for our players. And, and obviously it's not just our players, it's the wider New Zealand emerging pro sort of community. Yeah, and you manage a couple of players. How many have you got under your umbrella? Yeah, so I mean, we, we, in terms of pros, we've got Timwa Joel and Timwa's elder brother, Luamba. So Luamba was at uh, Washington uh, yeah. and played for the New Zealand team. And he's in the UK at the moment. So he's currently 150 in the world. So those are the three guys that are the core of the group. And then there's some other sort of emerging pros that we, that we work with, some younger guys that are just coming out of juniors that um, we help with their training and what have you. It's amazing. I mean, so great for them just to have something that they can help bridge the connection from the end of their junior life to the beginning of their professional ranks. I mean, that's amazing. Well done. Yeah, I think so. I mean, <clears throat> you know, when you look around the world, they're really – even countries that do certain things very, very well, I'm, I'm not really aware of too many places, and I know of a couple, where they support this emerging pro sector. So they'll, a lot of countries will have good programs for their juniors, and New Zealand has lots of good programs for juniors coming through, uh, elite juniors. But even very, very good squash countries often don't have anything for the, for the kids once they turn 19. And they're kind of on their own until they 
climb up the national rankings and start sort of being contenders for national representation. How involved are you with Squash New Zealand? Yeah, I mean, we sort of, um, we have a little bit to do with Squash New Zealand. Uh, not so much at the moment. It does vary uh, from time to time. Um, we have a good relationship with uh, high performance manager, Shelley Kitchen, in terms of that, that there's dialogue and, and they know what we're doing and we tell them what, we're, what they're doing. You know, it's tough for them at the moment. They don't have a lot of money and COVID is going to hit them hard. They're going to, you know, lose their a lot of their revenues and they have to make tough decisions about what they choose to do in the next year or so till things come right. Yeah, safe to say, I don't think any of us envy that job. So the first event has, has been and gone. How was that received? It must have been amazing for so many people to have some squash and sport to look forward to. And what can we expect coming up in the next three? I've had some mixed reaction to that. I think everyone would love to watch the top 10 players playing right now. But we've had a, a tremendous amount of support from the squash community around the world. Just happy to see squash being played. And look, our attitude with it really is we didn't, you know, we're not here trying to rub uh, um, people's nose in it and say, teehee, you know, we're back playing, you're not. That wasn't the idea of it. I think the idea is get some live squash out there and give some hope to people that are um, still locked out of their clubs that, you know, it won't be too long before they're back in their clubs and they can enjoy squash again. So hopefully yeah. this will keep them in love with the game. Totally, man. It's been awesome to have some live squash to watch and some more live squash over the next three weeks to look forward to. What you've done has been amazing to see an opportunity to get some really good exposure for squash, not just in New Zealand, but globally. It's amazing. So fair play, man. Yeah, I mean, I think with some of these things, I mean, obviously we, we needed to have, I've run a lot of events. Um, I mean, my big plug, uh, my big claim to fame, whether it's true or not, I, I probably should really <laughs> fact check it, is um, in, the, in last year, in the 2018, 2019 season, we did 13 PSAs. Now, most of those were satellites. My only one of them was a, a full-blown PSA. But I think it made us the biggest most active promoter on the PSA tour in that year. Uh, so we're used to running events. And look, the reality is running a PSA-only satellite is an absolute breeze because you've only got 16 players. You put the times in, they turn up, they're professional, they play. The actual uh, level of organization required to do that is quite small. And the cost to do it is quite small also in terms of prize money and that kind of thing. And when we first started doing the series, we originally live-streamed on an iPhone in a cup you know, of the court. And then we've just progressively built up our skills so that we're now using a cinema camera and we've got all the gear. Not, it's not expensive, but we know how to use it. So we yeah. can turn out a reasonable quality live stream. Again, with no real effort, we just simply have the cameras, we set them up um, and we pull the trigger. It, but it's taken a long time to develop that capability and it's taken a reasonable amount of focus to say that we're going to do that. We're going to learn how to... Um, live stream we're going to learn how to do the scoring and do all that kind of stuff but we've had good support so the players have supported us the prize money for this unsquashable premier league is terrible it's absolutely terrible but there's something and the players appreciate that they, they want to play they want to train so they've come to the party we've got a, one of our new zealand referees heather finley who's come to the party and uh, comes down and referees all the matches and is really helpful so there's a bunch of people that have got him behind it. Dave Worsley, as I say, is not getting paid, doing a tremendous amount of very high-quality media work for us, is doing yeah. the commentary last week and this week. You know, so there's a bunch of people that support it. And I guess, you know, what I would do is I'd encourage clubs around the world to say, you know, if you want to run events like this, it's not that difficult. And look, as a secondary plug, we're starting to um, 
do some events overseas where we take a group of players and we put on a satellite and we live stream it. We're going to do one in uh, Brisbane um, later in the year once we're able to do that, to do some events perhaps in the UK also. So, you know, if someone needs help and they want a group of young pros to come and boost an event, you know, give me a call. Yeah, amazing. I just want to go back to putting on 13 events. And I know you played it down very modestly to say, you know, most of them are pretty small on their satellites. But it's amazing what you're doing. You're giving these young, especially young New Zealand players, an opportunity to start their PSA careers and to get the exposure to play against players from other nations and different styles of squash. I think it's, you know, what you've done is amazing. Um, Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's just... It's just a logical thing to do. So, you know, we, we first of all got the squad together and we start training the guys and they start improving. And yeah. then you're like, um, and then you think, well, it'd be good if they can play and get up the world rankings. And then, you know, you start to understand the world rankings and you start to realize that they have to play 10 to 13 events to get a proper ranking. And, and it doesn't create a lot of intelligence to then work out that it's not easy to play 10 or 13 events when you've got no ranking and you're stuck in Auckland, New Zealand, miles away from the rest of the world. And the guys can't afford to fly everywhere. And even if they could, they couldn't get into those events anyway. So then it becomes pretty obvious that, okay, I need to run a satellite. And then you say, well, actually, if I just run one, that's cool, but who's going to come? Who's going to play? Because it's not just about the guys getting points. It's about experience. And we don't want to run events without decent competition. I mean, if other guys come... Our first event, Sam Kang, came from Singapore. He won both of them. And um, and that was great. He brought a couple of other Singaporean guys. They were um, great to have around. Fantastic ambassadors for Singapore squash. And he won the titles. And, I, I you know, it was it was great. I wasn't sitting there going, damn, drat, why did the guy come? If one of our guys had a one, they would have got 30 points instead of 19 and a half points for coming second. Because it was a great experience for our athletes. And they learn, you know, some of these older pros are pretty smart. And they have to figure that stuff out as well for themselves. Yeah. And in any event, so we kind of worked it out. And, and we worked out that these things needed to be done and that no one else was going to do them. So we would do it. And then we tried to figure out ways of making it cost effective. And, um, and then obviously the live streaming and all the other stuff came along with it. It's very obvious to me, um, having gone through it, I think that probably most countries and most um, setups haven't really sort of looked at the detail of what emerging pros really, really need in order to get started. You know, there's no point giving them training. There's no point giving them a certain support services if they can't play and get their ranking up, you know? So, um, and it's a lot of work, but it's, it's actually, it's just logical. You know, if, if, they, if you want your players to improve, that's what they have to do. Yeah, absolutely. You need competition. You need to see what's out there. You need to expose yourself to new and different types of players and personalities. Otherwise, you're just training for the sake of training. The competition gives that training more purpose. And as you, I, and we all know, squash and sport isn't just about being able to hit a good ball or being really fit. You need to learn how to put it all together, to play to your strengths, to figure out your opponent's weaknesses, etc. And to do all that and to put it all together when the chips are down. And training without competition just can't do that. Can't replicate how you would react in certain situations when, you know, the outcome really means a lot to you. Yeah, I think, and I think like right now, um, there's tremendous uncertainty with the tour. When is it going to start up again? Um, are all sponsors going to climb back in and we're going to have a full schedule or, or are some going to pull out? Um, is there going to be a slow start? You know, so there's all of that uncertainty. And if there's not a lot of events, I would certainly encourage clubs and associations to look at running these smaller events uh, for their emerging players if there's not a lot of events. You know, we could find that, 
a lot of guys retire or there's there's heaps of events and there's no problem getting into 5Ks, or we might find there's not many and the, there's nothing for emerging players to, to get started on. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. I don't know what your perception is, but my feeling in the last two, three years of the tour is it's the tour's got better for better players. There's more World Series events. There's more um, gold and silver events, which are good for the top, top players. Yeah. And there's probably fewer 5 and 10Ks. And that's fair enough. I, I can understand promoters would rather pay a bit more and get the top players. I mean, I'm totally cool with that. I think it's great. But I think that if that trend was to continue, we'd then have a problem at the lower end of the scale where there wouldn't be a lot of events, enough events for. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I don't follow the calendar as closely as I used to. Back in the day, it was something I looked at nearly every day. But from following the results and looking at some of the draws and from talking to one or two of the players, 5 and 10K seem to be pretty stacked. And that's generally a sign that there's just not enough of them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, like I say, it's a good thing. It's great. It's great for the top players, and it's, and everyone aspires to be a top player. So no one's going to begrudge the focus on um, those top events, and and so that that's fantastic. It's just you know it, it says that there's actually a need for some of these lower level events to fire up. Totally, John, you've been amazing with your time. We really appreciate it. And whilst there may be a touch of envy from club owners around the globe, you've also shown that there is indeed some light at the end of the tunnel. And the whole squash world really appreciates having some live squash to look forward to uh, over the next few few weeks. So uh, fair play. Cheers, man. Oh, cheers, bro. No, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fun. And, um, you know, uh, getting the game back to where it deserves to be as soon as possible is, is definitely part of our goal, for sure. Yeah. Legend, man. And I'm sure all those youngsters that you have under your wing really appreciate you giving them the opportunity to play and looking out for them. Keep doing the great work and look forward to this weekend's event. Cool. Hey, cheers, man. Take yeah, care. Cheers. If you want to learn more about Squash XL, you can check out their Instagram page and they have a website, squashxl.co.nz. The tournaments are on YouTube. Just stick it into YouTube and happy days. What an interview and the vision. What do you think to what you just heard? What's your takeaway from it? Yeah, I do think it's actually quite insightful and it probably has some potential implications for the PSA because obviously at some point they're going to have to start up the tour again and we're going to be in a situation where different people around the world have maybe been training in different ways and had, some might have had access to courts for a couple of months, some might only have been back on court for a week or two. So I do think it, I don't think you can read too much into it but it does send a signal that um, tour might be a little bit strange, certainly result-wise in the first couple of months until people get back to their the previous level. Um, I also think you'll find that some people naturally just can pick up a racket and step on court and be pretty close to where they were as long as they're fit and ready to go. Whereas I, I was going to say, Stuart, I, I am uh, thinking about taking a crack at the tour after this because unlike these pros who like to hit twice a day, I'm used to just picking up a racket every once in a while and don't really find it disturbs me too much. So after doing some of these squash workouts in the in the garage and racket around with some ghosting say, i'm feeling like a yeah, new man this is your perfect time to uh to eclipse your your highest world ranking i mean you're obviously fit you're doing you know 15 16 miles a day you pick up a racket once every like 10 months as is i mean this is perfect time i can see you playing like someone like gaultier first round and getting some revenge and chopping him up Ooh, i don't know about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah Unfortunately, I've tried playing squash when I'm in reasonably good shape from running and the two don't go hand in hand at all. If anything, the more running I do, the slower I become on court. 
Lastly, I suppose, just before we wrap things up, if you were to pick one player to come out of lockdown life and to come back in the deep end for a major event, who would you back to win it? I want one male player or one female player. I think I would uh, probably take Ali uh, Frog on the men's side. You know, I just don't really see him putting on any weight. <laughs> I think he's, I think he's pretty disciplined, and I can see him, I can see him coming out and being just as, you know, lightning fast and in good shape. And on the women's side, it's an interesting one. I could see like a Sherbini coming out and just shooting the lights out on everyone while they're while they're not quite uh, seeing the ball as clearly and quickly. And yeah, on the men's side, I, I would probably add Paul Call into the mix because first of all, I can't imagine that he's not training and keeping himself in shape physically. Secondly, I don't know if he's back in New Zealand or if he's still in Europe where he does most of his training throughout the season. But if he's back in New Zealand and he's got access to courts again, that's another thing that's really going to benefit him. But regardless of whether he's playing squash, if he can get stuck in and make games physical from, right from the start people might not be as sharp as they normally are and I yeah. think that's really going to play to his strengths uh, on the women's side I would agree with Chris I think Shabini is always going to be a, I mean she won the world championships having barely played for six months this year uh, I think Raneem is another one who the last two three years those two have just been dominant in terms of their consistency and making major finals and I don't think uh, a global pandemic is enough to stop those two right now. I'm going to go for a bit of a wild card here. Two wild cards, cards I guess, on the on the men's side. Abu Agar and possibly Dasuki. We all know that they have boatloads of talents, but I, I think... You only know to choose one, big man. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Easy. All right, all right. I'm not going to ride the fence here. I'm going to go with Dasuki. And on the women's side, I was going to go with Raneem, but I'll be a little biased here. I'm going to go with Amanda Sobe. I think having come back from that Achilles uh, rupture, I think she's also mentally strong enough to, to not let this pandemic uh, really get to her. I think she'll be ready and roaring to, to train and just like really go after it. Yeah, it is. I think I would agree with you. I think I will go Amanda Sobe and then Paul Cole for the men. Okay, gents, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jamal. Thank you, everyone, for listening and for all your positive feedback last week. It was really appreciated. Uh, we have taken more steps to becoming more legit by creating a Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram account. You can check us out there on Around the Court Squash Podcast. All likes and shares of our episode are really appreciated. Uh, next week, we have a really special guest, which we will let you know via our social media platforms. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.